0: Welcome everyone to the Leadership Evolve Podcast, where our aim is to provide insight and knowledge into the modern state of leadership. And in the process, uh, we really hope to help you lead a better life, both at your work and at home. I'm beyond excited to be back to kickstart the second half of season one, and I genuinely could not imagine a better guest to headline this episode. He is a leadership and team expert who happens to be a best-selling author of four books. His insights have been featured on Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, USA Today, and BBC, just to name a few. He's worked with a series of organizations such as Google, Viacom, Fidelity, and even the US Naval Academy. He's also an amazing speaker who's had his TED Talk viewed over two million times. Our conversation today, though, fully revolves around his newest book, leading from anywhere the central guide to managing remote teams he wrote this in mid 2020 where we were in the thick of it but even as we slowly crawl our way out of the pandemic remote work is definitely here to stay i personally resonated with this book because i not only had challenges managing remotely but i felt the effects of being managed poorly now, I know some of you enjoy working from home or have implemented successfully, but I honestly think if I didn't come across this, I'd still be counting down the days until I was back in the office. Daniel Pink, the best-selling author of To Sell is Human, stated, Leading from Anywhere is the best book on remote work I've ever read. Incisive, original, and eminently practical. Read it and take notes! Exclamation <laughs> Um we had an amazing conversation and i just like daniel ping i highly recommend you take notes throughout it but i try to fill up the show notes uh with links and and any other references that's going to help you guys out while you're listening to this or even after it um without further ado everyone please give it up for david burkus
1: kitchen words down wanting his mom to listen but we're, see we're
0: bitch both getting recorded here all right good to go awesome uh david uh welcome officially to the leadership evolve podcast i'm, I'm super
1: grateful and ecstatic uh, to have you on here oh well, wow that's uh that's a that's a lot that's a lot of pressure but thank you so much for having me Yeah, of
0: course. Of course. Uh, Before we get into into your phenomenal book, Leading from Anywhere, which by the way, I finished uh, last week, I want to dig into a little bit your personal leadership journey. Um, And to kick things off, I'm going to go way back. I want to see what was there a moment that sparked your passion in leadership?
1: Yeah, uh, it it depends on how far back you want to go. I a lot of my passion for uh, to work with and to help develop leaders stems more from a realization that work or the experience of work for most people sucks. Uh, and it's too important in our life to be something that's demotivating. I mean, there's a reason that that in the 2010s, The Office was the number one sitcom in the world, right? There's a reason that movies like Office Space are are funny. And I dream of a world where they're not funny, where no one gets the joke, right? Um, but, but in the interim, there's a lot of work we have to do and leaders are really the best way to do that. Leaders are the number one influence on a company's culture, for example, and how well a team clicks and thrives, et cetera. So they're the number one place to look if we're trying to make the experience of work work for more people.
0: And was there a specific time, uh, where you looked at leadership and leaders, you obviously noticing the the importance of it, but then you looked at it and said, you know what, I think there's a better way of doing this. Uh, and you alluded a little bit to the office and, and the humor that's behind it. But what made it click for you and said, you know what, I, I want to talk about this because I think there's better ways in doing this and to curate better leaders out there.
1: Yeah. So I've I've wanted to do what I do now, which is primarily I consider myself a writer um, and, a, and a content creator. And I've wanted to do that since I was like 14 years old. Uh, I studied English and creative writing. As an undergrad, I thought that meant that I was going to be a novelist, right? Mm -hmm. And then by chance, I took a course in organizational communication and then another in organizational behavior and another in teams and motivation. And I I just sort of, I made my own minor out of all of these courses that just were in the study of organizations, what have you. And then, of course, I did an internship. And like a lot of people, uh, it was a soul draining experience to work in corporate America for the first time. (laughs) And so I started reading a lot of people's ideas about how we could make this better and came out of um pretty pretty much came out of undergraduate university with this idea that I wanted to blend writing and uh, organizational psychology to focus on leaders and teams in the workplace my I wanted to emulate people like Daniel Pink to a lesser extent Malcolm Gladwell those sort of early social science writers who were great storytellers but also being helpful. Um, so, I went to, I went right from undergrad into graduate school in organizational psychology, the idea being that I would learn more about this topic that I wanted to write about. Uh, along the way, a number of things happened, and somehow I found myself teaching full-time business school for six years. That was not part of the plan. I um, mean, it was fun. It was enjoyable. I'm not, not saying that as a bad thing. It was just an right. interesting little uh, little twist, but the goal has always been that, use these best insights from the people who are studying how to make work better, but make it more applicable more um, easier to understand, more practical and target it towards teams and leaders, because those are the big shapers on whether or not people have a positive experience of work.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, you, you you know, as you're talking about corporate world and, and uh, especially being a management professor, I'm just a flood of memories are coming in because I experienced both of them. As being a manager, uh, a management professor during that time, did you see yourself having kind of a responsibility in being able to shape the next wave of, of leaders and and people in the corporate world by having that opportunity to teach these young brains, young minds?
1: I mean, yeah, the diplomatic answer is, of course I did. And, you know, I love <laughs> shape, shaping the next generation, et cetera. No, really, to be totally candid with you, and I remember we talked about this a bit, you know, before we were recording, I saw a, a problem, really, which is that there are, there's really two uh, types of... Uh, in, on the whole, there's really two types of leadership literature, leadership books or development courses or that sort of stuff. Um, there's there's the stuff that's coming out of most of the researchers, the academics. And, and I say academics, but that's not really fair because there's also you know, deep, well-researched organizations like Gallup that are doing a lot of data, doing a lot of study. And then there's academic organizations. But a lot of it is really um, high-minded. It's expensive. It's deliberately vague, so that you sort of like how doctors change the name of every part of your body, so that they can feel smarter. You know, it's very esoteric. Um, and then on the opposite side of that, there's junk food, right? There's stuff that makes you feel inspired, makes you feel like you might be a better leader. But when you really actually dig into it, like there's nothing there. Be a good person. Great, got that. Next. No, 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 no. Next. There's 240 more pages of be a good person. Right. <laughs> And so it tastes good, but it's empty calories. And so um, that, it, it was less of an inspiration and more of a, a feeling that I needed to fix that. It, you know, my undergraduates, for sure, I needed to get them exposed to what was, what we actually know is true from well-researched, you know, calorie-rich, nutrient-dense leadership uh, research so that they're not uh, focused on all this junk food, right? And at the same time, I felt like there was a need to write about that those very topics, but in a way that was as approachable as all of the other sort of inspirational people. And I'm not going to name names here, but right. I guarantee you everybody's listening has names in their mind when I say these two categories. And then, then, then the category of people that can do both, right? That can, um, that can di- de- distill these great insights from the world of social science in a way that's practical and applicable. It's a lot smaller category and it's one that I think needs to be bigger. And so I was really excited and felt the, the pressure of the need to join that fight. Uh, In the hopes that, yeah, that would shape future generations, shape future organizations, and, and accomplish that goal of making work suck just a little bit less.
0: Just a little bit, right? And that's one thing that I noticed with your book right away uh, from the intro was your emphasis on the practicality. Uh, and someone that has come from reading, reading leadership books for 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 a decade or so now, uh, it was it's a breath of fresh air when when you see that pivot from theory to practicality. And one of the things with theory, in essence, there's nothing wrong with it, right? Because you're, you're if, even if you understand the concepts and you understand what the idea is and and what all that is the reader has another job after that because they have to take all that and translate it into how now how can I apply it to my workplace and how I can apply it to my life but what I loved about your book and this is evident right away is that you're trying to make it practical as possible so I don't have to do that extra work and one of the things about it was you mentioned that hey you guys don't have to go chapter by chapter you can bounce around if you want and I was like it was so new to me that I didn't know what to do. I'm like sure <laughs> I don't know. Can I Can I really do this? Because it was so foreign to me. What was the idea behind having that emphasis on practicality? And I obviously know you mentioned a, a lot right now to those empty calories and whatnot.
1: Yeah. So, you know, leading from anywhere was really the, the whole idea from I mean, it was a pandemic book. Uh, we started talking about it a couple of weeks after the great work from home experiment began. Uh, we wrote the whole thing in about eight weeks. Uh, really distilling a lot of uh, there was already a lot of great research on virtual teams. Again, a lot of it was in the category, the academic ivory tower category, right? And so uh, distilling it out was hard, and that's and that's for a reason, right? The, like not to get overly conspiratorial, but like those companies and the people who do it want you to hire them as consultants and want you to pay them six figures to come do this for them. So of course, it's a little vague, right? It's very well researched, but of course, it's a little vague. I, I guess on the academic side, too, they're interested in impressing, you know, a very small group of fellow academics, mm-hmm. too. So they have no incentive to make it practical. So when we were writing out the book, I got this idea to, you know, really structured around the life cycle of a team, you know, the beginnings, what, it like, what it's like to get everything clicking and, and everybody performing, what happens when you have to disband the team. And so that's that became the structure of the book. To be totally honest with you, just because it was the easiest way to think about everything, I had to mm-hmm. distill. Like every time I'm reading a new research study, it was easy to put it in one of those buckets. Um, then I just became fascinated with that idea, and I wish I would have put this in the book. Uh, I didn't think of it until I was giving an interview or two afterwards. Um, but do you remember when you were a kid, you and I, you and I, when we were kids, we used to read those choose-your own adventure books, right? Where you're you're the protagonist, and it'll say mm-hmm. if you want to go up the mountain, turn to page sixty three or whatever. Well, this is like a choose-your own dilemma book for. For most listeners, right? Like what dilemma in the world in this great work from home experiment, what dilemma are you currently facing? And then great, we've got a chapter for that. So turn to that chapter. That became the idea, right? Was that, okay, we structured around the life cycle team. It'd be great if you read the whole thing from, from front to back, but most people are going to go, well, I have this problem. So I don't need, oh, I don't need to worry about how we're going to, what systems we're going to use for communication or whatever. Like how do I fire someone? Great. Turn to page, whatever. We got that covered. you know. Um, so yeah, the, it, it started as just an easy way to think through how to segment out all of the research, but I really fell in love with that idea of a choose your own dilemma book, uh, so that people could just uh, truthfully reference it back to, I mean, my, my secret hope is that you read the thing front to back and then you just keep coming back to it every time you've got a new dilemma.
0: Right. And and I found myself in the beginning jumping from chapter to chapter. And then by the time uh, I noticed, I had finished the whole book. i had ended up reading all the chapters. And I think the way you approach it, I really hope a lot more authors uh, pick up on it because, you know, some people, especially reading nonfiction books, feel that pressure that, oh, man, you know, I love chapter three. I'm on page 35 now, you know, I got 300 more pages. I know chapter 10 from the contents is something I want to read and you legit feel, even though you can do it, obviously you're in your home, you can turn the page if you want, but you feel like you're not allowed to, that you're doing something wrong. So I love seeing that and I love the freedom of going about it. Um, But with that freedom with it, I I really do see chapter one as a foundation. I know almost all my listeners are safe to say that they're working from home or they have to lead a team that are working from home. Uh, But chapter one, talking about the transition to working remotely. And I know a lot of us are still going through that, uh, whether like to admit it or not, but you emphasize the importance of shared identity, shared understanding, and shared purpose. Can you dive into that in terms of why those are so critical in this transition to remote work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So so I, in, to some extent, chapter one and chapter two were actually originally a, one big chapter around team culture, right? Because, because that was the number one thing people told me they were worried about. Uh, which is great. I, I, to be totally honest with you, um, I was pleasantly surprised as we got into to talking to people about this shift to remote, that that was what they were worried about instead of how do I know they're working? I was anticipating the how do I know they're working question. I was very pleasantly surprised that most leaders were like, well, how do we keep our uh, building culture? How do we? And what we find when you look at the research, pre-pandemic research on um, on great virtual teams, what their culture feels like, et cetera, you find those three categories. I'm actually sort of simplifying and lumping a couple of things mm-hmm. together, a couple of different studies together to arrive at that three. Um, but shared understanding, shared identity, and, um, a, a sense of shared purpose, or sometimes it's called a pro social purpose, et cetera. Um, Why those matter so much is if you don't nail those, then it doesn't really matter what software system you're using to manage projects and what communication tool you're using because people are going to have arguments and it doesn't really matter what you're doing to help your team stay motivated software wise or incentive compensation wise or that sort of thing if they don't have that sense of purpose, right? So so this is where I think most people should focus, right? Now, let me define those terms real quick if, if I can. So shared understanding yeah, speaks to um, the knowledge, skills and abilities, how well I know who's good at what on my team and also how well I know who's working on what, right? Shared understanding is an ongoing thing. It's not a one and done, um, but it's, it's whether or not we've got a clear system in place for, to manage expectations, to set to mutually set objectives, to update each other on our progress. And over the last year, especially since most of us were forced into remote um, instead of voluntarily choosing it, I think the context we're working in is a huge part of shared understanding as well. Meaning, do, do we know how and where each other are working? Some of us, you know, as we're recording this, I'm lucky enough to be uh, in the basement of, I'm in an office that's about a 10 foot by 10 foot room in the basement of my house, my kids are still in school for another 15 minutes or so. Uh, they wow. won't be coming home, so it's quiet, right? It's nice. Mm-hmm. And other people who might be listening to this are like, oh, that sounds great, but I work at the at one end of the dining room table and at the other end, my two kids are being Zoom schooled and on the couch is my spouse who's also trying to work. I don't have the same context. Well, it's really important. No, no judgment on anyone's context, mm-hmm. but it's important for the whole team to know that. Your expectations of responsiveness change when you do that right your expectations of who can always be on every single team meeting and who i need to make sure i'm managing invitations so i'm not burning out and creating zoom fatigue are that doesn't happen if you don't build shared understanding a shared identity so if shared understanding was like last year's problem Mm -hmm. shared identity i think is this year's problem as we start to look at the light at the end of the tunnel i have no idea how long the tunnel is but there is a light at the end of it now Mm -hmm. right and so it's safe to say we're some of us, at least, are going back to the office, going back to quote-unquote normal. But a higher percentage of people than ever before are going to want and, and demand flexibility. The future of work is working from anywhere. Now, the problem with that is that organizations have always struggled against the silos, the politics, the turf wars, struggled against the us versus them. In, in years past, it was very often either uh, regional or it was uh, occupational. In other words, marketing and legal always fight, right? Or these two regions of the country always mm-hmm. fight inside the organization. Now, even on a team, a singular team, you can have an us versus them between the people who are always in the office, the sometimes in the office, and the some and the always working remotely team. And that that's a recipe for disaster, right? So if you don't really bring that sense of we are one team, we're working on this one project, I draw my identity from being a member of this team, then you're gonna have that us versus them creep in. And that's what I'm paying a lot of attention to this year. And how do you do that actually leads into the third element, which is the number one thing you can do beyond making sure that you're building bonds and allowing time for people to connect no matter where they are, uh, is to give people that shared purpose or what I sometimes call a pro-social purpose. In other words, to point to something bigger than just the team and getting the work done and point to why that work matters. And why us being interdependent to each other matters why we have to work together on this we have to really believe is that we're one unified team working on this project or else the project will fail and that will cause harm in the world or at least cause the lack of a good thing in the world my little question that i often use for whether or not you truly have a purpose that's powerful enough is if i walked up to your team and you weren't even there to take cues off of And I asked each person, hey, when you think about the work that we do, what are we fighting for? And not who are we fighting, not a competitor question about this and that, but just what are we fighting for? What are we working for so hard that we consider it a struggle? We consider it something bigger than ourselves, some injustice in the world we're trying to remove uh, or or something that our, our customers or some other stakeholder is really fighting for and we provide aid to that. Those are the types of purposes the types of, that's a really, I've never pluraled purpose, um, but there you go. Th- those are the types of it that really actually unify a team, motivate them and make it really easy for even the day-to-day tasks to be seen as significant, which has a huge motivational driver, especially in a remote world where you feel out on your own so often, being constantly reminded of why we're doing this and why we're doing it as a team can have a powerful effect on whether or not your team sinks or floats
0: you nailed it right there in terms of a reminder. Uh, I have a lot of friends in enterprise tech sales and in the last year they've transitioned to working from home from working from open office environments and they mentioned that their you know their bosses say hey you know what you already know why we're here or you already know what we're doing and it's always you already know what it is so I don't know if it's an escape route for the bosses, and for the managers, but they feel that, you know, oh, we've said it when you at your orientation two years ago and and you see our website, you know, we email, so it's good enough. But you nail it right there. It's simple questions and, and reminders of it. But somehow these managers feel I don't I don't need to be doing that
1: yeah, I agree. and 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 enterprise sales specifically, there's two two problems, right? There's that problem. Uh, and that problem's not unique to enterprise sales, but a lot of situations where you're um, where you're interacting with a customer, you're closing a deal and you're not really even hearing how it ends can be devoid of task significance. You know, the other thing specific to a sales thing is we focus on the numbers and we celebrate sort of growth and who made what sales and how many deals you made or what the dollar value of the deals are. but but growth, or revenue or those sort of things, those those are terrible metrics to celebrate. I mean, that's like, that's the equivalent of celebrating that we're driving 65 miles an hour. Right. Great. Tell me where we're going, right? (laughs) Tell me, tell me why we need to get there so fast. You want me to go 75. Tell me not that good job getting to 65. I believe in you. You can get to 75. Tell me where we're driving to and why it's so important. And I will, I will do that. I'll manage the rest of that myself. And this is a constant thing. Now, that doesn't mean you need to constantly using the same language. I actually think for a team leader, your job when it comes to purpose and motivation is to be sort of chief storyteller, right? Is to capture client success stories, capture those different ways. Uh, In which there are events going on around you that prove why you're so important as an organization, why the work that they're doing is so important, how it makes clients' lives better, and make sure to share those. So it doesn't need to be you just stating the mission statement over and over and over again. Nobody wants to hear that. Not even the consultant you paid $10,000 to write that mission statement for you, right? Nobody wants to hear that. What they want to hear is stories from the people whose lives or whose work is actually changed by the work that you're doing. And your job is to capture those stories and circulate them often to the whole team.
0: Yeah, that, I love all that. And you mentioned in one part uh, about superordinate goals. It's my first time hearing it. Um, you, you notice, how you referenced how important it is for shared identity specifically, but how are these goals for our listeners? How are these goals different than, than normal goals?
1: Yeah. So, you know, goal, goal setting is a very individual thing. You, to some extent, there's team goals, but uh, a lot of our approach to it is, oh, if the team, I mean, not to go back to sales, right? But if the team, if the individuals on the team all hit their goal, then we'll hit the team goal and we're good, right? A superordinate goal is different. A, a superordinate goal is usually something that requires more than one team, more than one department, or at least more than one kind of identity group if it's inside of a team, right? So, Uh, Sometimes you have sales and customer service overlapping, sometimes marketing and sales overlapping, but they still retain their original identity. And it's something that is so large, but also so important that it forces people to unite around this common idea, right? So it's not enough to just be the sum total of everybody's individual goals. Um, And in fact, one of the best superordinate goals is usually an outside threat, not an outside threat of a competitor, but an outside threat in terms of this is the way the world will Go. This is what will happen in the future if our organization isn't successful, right? So this is often that right now um, that takes the the form of uh, social justice movements. But it's been it's been popular to be used in other ways in the past, environmental uh, movements, but even just the idea that we're wasting time or we're not adapting. We're the one organization that's adapting to be ready for the future. And so our whole industry is running the risk of extinction unless they make these changes. And by doing our work, we show and point to the rest of the world how this adaptation needs to come. Those are all superordinate goals, right? Um, Another great superordinate goal is to again point to what a customer or stakeholder is working for or fighting for and how the work that we do is part of that. We, uh, We are allied with lots of other organizations and the customer or stakeholder themselves. And when we all do our part, we win right? Those are superordinate goals. That's much bigger than your own individual goal. That doesn't mean don't set individual goals. Just make it super clear. This is the big thing, the thing that's bigger than any one individual of us that we're all working towards. And this is how you accomplishing your goals helps us hit that. That's a whole lot bigger than just adding up each individual revenue target and then saying, boom, our new goal is this.
0: Yeah, and it really it really does give a, a sense of that purpose that you mentioned in the book. When you have that focus, everyone is focused, re- whether you're sitting at the end of a dining table or you have your whole basement, regardless of it, you, you guys know that you're all fighting for the one thing. And I think that goes a long way. Um, I wanna pivot to chapter three, uh, just because I think hiring has always been so challenging before even the pandemic, uh, whether you're a leader or an organization as a whole, it's, it's one of the most challenging things in my opinion. Um, now you add a whole different dynamic to it and you add the whole virtual aspect to it. You mentioned in part how important communication and collaboration is, which contrary to, you know, common sense perspective, you would think, okay, I'm in isolation. You know, I want to work in silence. Everyone's kind of doing their own thing, but you mentioned, you know what? No, no, this is actually even more important now that were away. Uh, can you share some of your thoughts on uh, some of the important takeaways from chapter three and on the importance of that communication and, and collaboration?
1: Yeah, yeah, and and I should say, like, in terms of interviewing and hiring a new teammate, let's just be real for a second. The bar for ha- having a successful interview process was pretty low. In other words, most organizations were already terrible at this, right? We did like the two rounds of speed dating with candidates. Then we picked the bachelor and or bachelorette, gave them a job offer and spent the next four or five years of our life working alongside them for 40 hours a week. And then we acted shocked when greater than 50% of them didn't even make it that long, right? Because it wasn't a cultural fit or they weren't a skills fit or whatever it was, right? Well, yeah, we're using a pretty interviews by themselves apart from any other assessment of skills and fit are a pretty terrible way to judge, Mm -hmm. right? And so in the last year, unfortunately, a lot of organizations have been like, great, we'll just do the interviews by Zoom and everything will be fine. No, because everything wasn't fine before, right? The good news is that, again, as I said, the bar is pretty low. So it doesn't take a lot to level right. up your interview and selection process. And yeah, one of the big things you're looking for is whether or not they're communicators and, and collaborators, in particular, the way that they communicate and the way that they collaborate is a fit for your team right? So, so you might think, like you said, that, that collaboration is less important, but it's actually more important in a remote environment. The reason is that almost no one in a knowledge work economy is working on a project solely by themselves, right? I mean, if you, if you are the one uh, coder in this small startup and you're the one entirely responsible for the website, then yeah, you could probably go long stretches, but you still need to communicate to other teams about what needs to be on the website, for example, right? There, there is still a need to be in sync With a lot of the other people in the organization, which means we need to be much more deliberate and specific about collaboration because we don't have the walk down the hall, tap you on the shoulder and say, got a minute, we don't have that anymore. So we need to be much more explicit, which means that those ways to evaluate communication and collaboration need to be worked into the interview process, right? So number one, you know, the primary way you're going to communicate with most of the organization and most of your team in a remote environment is not synchronous video calling. It's text, it's emails, it's updating Basecamp or Asana or whatever project management tool you use, right? It's writing it in brief in Slack, right? So we need to incorporate that a bit. Maybe one of the rounds of the quote unquote interview actually just needs to be, I send you five questions, you write back five responses. The best fully distributed companies usually have some project or some similar task that is like what the work that you'll be doing, and you actually work alongside people from the organization so that they can assess um, how well you work with the rest of the team. Those, those elements need to be worked in. It's it's hard to recommend an exact system because it's different for every person in every position, but you need to be working those things in because they're even more important in this remote environment. The the standard just kind of interviewing people never really worked, and so it's guaranteed not to work on Zoom for, for, a, for no other reason, by the way, than, that, like I said, you're not going to be communicating on Zoom. Um, And I should also emphasize here that just like there's no one unified process, there's no right answer. There's no great way people communicate, right? What matters is whether or not it's a fit. You know, I think I said this, like you could be a great writer because you have an MFA in English literature, but if everybody else is talking in like in acronyms and emojis, then you're not a good fit for that team, even though you're a great writer, right? So it really depends on how well these things fit with the existing team, because that teamwork element is so important, even in a remote environment, you're not working alone when you work remotely, you're working alone together. And that together piece is the most important word in that phrase.
0: Together being so important. And you mentioned the bar being set so low. I love the case study you put in there with Automatic and the way they audition for the new roles. I I stopped myself after I read that and I was thinking, you know, why can't every, literally every Company, do this? And I know it's harder with different jobs or whatnot, but do you see the ideal way of interviewing in the future or even now to be that uh, the way Automatic does it, for example?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I like the auditions route. I like there's there's certain in certain industries it's really difficult to do. There's privacy concerns and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's possible to either create a stage in the process where people, especially people that are final round and they're almost sort of it's it's less of an audition and more of a probationary period. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's possible for almost every job to create that or to create a simulated exercise that that'd be similar, right? So, okay, you're not actually going to be working on the company's. Website, but you are going to be writing a blog post around this person who also works for the company. Mm -hmm. And we may never actually publish the thing, but we're not talking about we're talking about two hours worth of work alongside someone, right? What automatic does is a multi-week thing. That's great. That might not work for everybody, right? Um, and it's not about getting free work out of people either. It's not about like, oh, if we just if we have everyone who auditions write a company blog (laughs) post, then we don't have to create our own content for year. That's not what we're going for. What we're going for is creating an opportunity to work alongside someone. It could be like you could, you could. For a lot of teams, you could get a similar uh, feel for what it's like to work mm-hmm. alongside somebody by throwing them into an, a virtual escape room with with mm-hmm. one of the candidates and just watching them over the, right? So it doesn't have to be work-related. Obviously, that's preferred. Right. The point is it has to be a whole lot more than just a really, really fake exchange of questions and answers for an hour, and then we make a decision based on really limited information.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Spot on. The my favorite section from that chapter was uh when talent flows from teams. And uh, it reminds me of Coach Chesky's uh, fist analogy where, you know, five fingers are, are so weak. But when you get a fist, you know, anything's possible. Complete changes the dynamic of, of the force that you have. Can you need to dive into a little bit from how talent at the importance of teams um, and, and really deriving talent from that?
1: Yeah. So th- this is one of the areas where a lot of the early uh, theorists on knowledge work and what changes in a knowledge work economy were actually kind of wrong. Like there's this famous Drucker quote that, you know, a knowledge worker takes the means of production home with him every night because it's between his two ears. And like that's sort of true. But we know now, decades after Drucker would have written that from studying of people in a variety of different industries that your individual performance, one of the biggest factors that determines your individual performance is the team that you're on, the resources you have access to, the organization you're a part of, a whole bunch of cultural factors, things that are external to you as the individual performer. right? So that was true even before the great work from home experiment. Mm-hmm. That was true even before the very first company decided to be a fully distributed company. right? right. Um, what's interesting is to note, especially over the last year, and we already talked about this to some extent. How much more important that phrase is that talent flows from teams, that that the team that you're on determines that talent. Because again, as we talked about, coordinating the work, keeping in sync with everybody else is even more important. E- even if you're right, like right? so, for example, you might be working on a project and you get three days in and the deadlines a a, a month out, you get three days in, and you and your infinite wisdom determine that the original deliverable is not gonna work, so I need to make a pivot. If that pivot is not communicated to other people, you may still have made the right pivot, but you did your team a disservice because it wasn't communicated to everybody, nobody's in sync, right? So that means talent, again, flows from teams even more so in a remote environment because the need to stay in sync to have clear expectations, understanding of deliverables, And also just the ability to ask for and receive help from time to time is heightened in that remote environment because we don't have the benefit of serendipity to bring that up, to walk down the hall and ask somebody a question. All of those things are removed from us and we need to deliberately put them back.
0: Yeah, and that last part uh, really struck home for me. I've experienced it and I have friends that have experienced it. You know, being a remote environment, you're hesitant to reach out um, and you're hesitant to receive feedback. And that all stems from obviously having that um, that great team and, and and have that cohesiveness between them. Um, this one last thing, and these are my friends who are begging me to ask you this because they've all struggled with it one way, onboarding. Um, you know, it's again, it's, it's common sense perspective. I think this is one aspect that uh, I think one of the most difficult things for employers and now you add in the whole uh, virtual aspect to it. You know, what are some things you can do to effectively onboard a new employee and then uh, and to buy into your culture? And then also from the employee perspective, because uh, I promised my friends, what are some things they can do to get themselves more in line with what the company is doing and what can they do on their end to make that onboarding process a little bit more easier and, and seamless?
1: Yeah. So prioritize connection over documentation is a phrase that I really emphasize in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'll emphasize it here too. Seems like a yeah, good strategy. Reach. And what I mean by that, right? And this is a similar situation to interviewing, right? The bar was pretty low. Most onboarding processes were driven by documentation, the need legally or regulations-wise or whatever to provide certain trainings. Uh, even, the, I mean, even like the company history training was boring, right? Cause it was somebody from HR clicking through a slideshow about in 1938, blah, blah, nobody cares. <laughs> right. Um, and I get that you need that, right? Most States, uh, when it comes to workplace safety or sexual harassment, et cetera, like you can't avoid that stuff. You're legally required to make it part of your process, but that doesn't mean it has to strip the connection piece from it. My favorite example, just to, just to give you one, and I, I can't, uh, name the, Company, Because then he'll be mad at me for butchering the story, which I'm sure I'm going to do, is a, a fully distributed company that does all of that stuff. You have a week of onboarding. But during that time, as you're going through all of these autoplay slideshows about the history of the company, you're partnered with somebody else from your team and you're watching it together and they can pause it and you can ask them questions and you can talk before and after about mm-hmm. it. So by the end of the week, you've gotten through all of that, but you also have gotten to know everybody on your team because it diff- everybody took a different role. I think that's a way better approach and again, one that prioritizes connection. You may not be able to change your whole organization and structure it around that way, but you can still do little things like that. Make sure that people have not just a high in the company, in the team Slack channel, but make sure people have a one-on-one experience with everybody on their team by the end of their first week. Even if it's just 20 minutes of a quick coffee chat, like it matters. It really does. And if you're on the flip side of that, because you asked that too, force that, right? You be the And I, ha- I hate saying this because I realize this doesn't... Um, not everyone's personality is this assertive, but you need to be. Your success on the team is determined by this. And so you have to kind of summon up a little courage and be very deliberate about uh, inviting people to, maybe you could stretch it to uh, two weeks or three, but make sure that you don't let a month go by where you haven't had a a time to have a long chat with everybody on the team, get to know them, understand them, build that sense of shared understanding we talked about at the top, because your performance is going to, Really determine that, and if your boss isn't going to provide that for you, then you need to force it.
0: Yeah, that's all great stuff, David. Uh, this last chapter, chapter nine, keeping engaged. I'm being selfish with this because I personally struggled with this as I was transitioning to work from home, and this stems from even in grade school, I would you know sit and do homework, and I would rather stare at the wall than than do it. So um, two things I want to focus on: the burnout and and the staying engaged overall. You know, as an employer, uh, both sides again, just like the last question from an employer side what can you do to keep that without that burnout happening? Because I think one of the challenging things is, hey, you're already at home. You're at your comfort. You know, your bedroom is right next door if you want to take a nap or your, you know, your kitchen's right there. So you are, I guess, technically comfortable, but that burnout feeling, I mean, for me at least, it felt a little bit more sometimes because it felt like I had no escape. So I would love to hear your take on just overall in chapter nine and and keeping that engagement.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in in terms of broad spectrum employee engagement a lot of what we've talked about already plays into that right if you're building shared understanding and identity and purpose you're you're hitting a lot of the keys with engagement the one thing we haven't talked about yet is again how do we help those people avoid burnout and and I get you. I mean, most of us, though, I think realize that that, that what you just said is a total lie. The idea that you have, you have that workplace flexibility, you could go take a nap in the middle of the day. Although there was a fascinating study that came out about a week ago that showed that the rate that people are taking naps is up, which is great, actually, because you need one. But um, the point is most people don't feel that freedom, right? What happened is a lot of us, a, a lot of uh, – can we call them the leadership devolved managers – yeah. Um, we're assuming when we worked in that office environment that presence equaled productivity, right? I can see you, therefore I know you're working, and I see when you leave and you're one of the last people to leave, so you must be a hard worker. We're like, no, you probably like were binge watching Game of Thrones and forgot to leave, right? Um, so that's a really negative take on why. Somebody no, would I love, be the it. too I love late, it. But it's true, right? Ask it your is. IT department how much time is spent on Netflix anyway. Right. Um, so when it comes to this great work from home experiment we've been in, you don't have physical presence, and so most managers, a lot of managers, traded responsiveness for presence. In other words, how quickly are you responding to my emails, my communication messages in Slack, et cetera, And that's what I'll use as the proxy for who is the most productive. I mean, bad news on two fronts, right? Number one, the people who are most responsive, are not the most productive people on your team. The fact that they could reply to your email 15 minutes later is actually proof that either it was right place, right time, or they weren't actually working on anything and that's why they could reply to it, right? (laughs) Right? So that's one. Two, that unfortunately pushes the the limits of when we're working, right? Because now everybody's on a different schedule and if those schedules haven't been communicated and people don't know when their declared responsive times and declared non-responsive times are then there's this subtle pressure on everyone to respond all of the time. And now you feel like you're living at work. You're not working from home. And that's a that's a rough situation, right? Um, so the best thing you can do as a leader and the best thing you can do for yourself if your leader's not doing this is to build back some of those boundaries between work and life, right? Build back the things that we used to have, the the little demarcations, commutes. We always loathe commute times and, and there's... There's evidence that when they get too long, that's a really negative thing. But we did mentally use the commute to an office as the kind of flip from home life to work life, right? Mm-hmm. And the commute back as a as a de-stress before we engaged in our home life. A lot of us did, right? Not everybody did. <clears throat> we need to sort of build that back. And that can take a couple different forms, right? That can just be a new ritual that signals to your mind you are moving between that. That can be moving to a different zone in the house if your house or apartment allots for that. I actually found, this is this is something I started doing after Um, the book uh, because I wrote I wrote the whole book basically over the summer. The -hmm. fall came. I was lucky enough to be in a part of the the world where schools opened back up, and so I started driving my kids to school Mm -hmm. because the the drive after I dropped them off, the drive back was like a twelve minute commute to the office. It just happened to be my house, but it was my morning like time to work, right? Um, and so little rhythms like that that help demarcate when we're in work mode and when we're not work mode help little pieces that we can do to add friction uh, between work and life. These go a long way in in avoiding burnout. The the real key in, in a remote environment to limiting or banishing or, or uh, f- I mean, hopefully fully eliminating burnout mm. is to draw those better boundaries. As a leader, I think you need to do this by setting your calendar, broadcasting it out, encouraging other people to share their calendars, and coming up with some ground rules for when we're communicating in these non-responsive times. Uh, if, if that doesn't happen, then you just need to be really clear about what your schedule is uh, and and when you, people can expect an immediate response from you and when they can't. Right. Um, So you may have to do it yourself. Ideally, the leader would do it for you. But again, a lot of leaders are out there still assuming that responsiveness is the way they're going to judge whether or not somebody is actually productive.
0: Yeah, no, and that uh, aspect of simulating uh, the ritual has worked for me as well. You know, instead of my commute, right, I used to listen to all my podcasts, and that was my transition into from home to work. I just use it and now put on my headphones and I walk my dog, and essentially on the last turn around coming back home, that's that's my commute uh, into work. And and I really do hope uh, as we go into this that the leaders just stop assuming and, and really take that proactiveness. And we talked about it earlier a little bit as far as you know, you're, oh, you already know the mission. You already know what we're about. You already know we're together. It's just so much assumptions. And they just take a little bit of time and just reach out to them, remind them or, or, or reach out and be proactive. if You know, they're struggling a little bit, whatever the case may be. I think God, it, it sounds so simple, but it also goes so such a long way if they do it. But the lack of them doing it is is so vast right now. And hopefully this conversation and conversations after this can can eliminate that gap just a little bit.
1: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I, I think it's we're not, you know, people have been asking me for a year when are we going back to the office and I've said it in this podcast a couple different times. We're not, not all of us, not all of the time, which means the time is now to have these conversations, to build that um that skill of mm-hmm. making boundaries between work and life, but also as a leader that skill of communicating and coordinating a team that's not all co-located the likelihood that your whole team is going to be in the same place for the majority of the week is very very small right some organizations yeah they're going to go right back to the way things were but there's going to be new levels of flexibility that are demanded and mm-hmm. so now's the time to be practicing all of these skills that we talked about you know, in this whole interview um because, because we're not we're not going back to this isn't just bide your time and then we all get to go back to 2019 it's it's over nothing nothing that happened in the pandemic in terms of its effect on our workplace is a change. It's just an acceleration. We were already headed here. Uh, And it kind of stinks that you had to adapt faster than normal, but you can't choose, I'm not going to adapt because we're not going back. We never were. We were always going forward towards this.
0: Yeah, and then your case studies in the book really, really allude to that, that this was happening way before the pandemic even happened. Um, before we wrap up the book, is there anything else you want everyone to, to know about your book uh, before we move on to the last part?
1: No, man. I mean, we, we structured this is sort of like a we're going to have to put timestamps in this interview so that your interview can be a choose your own dilemma thing as well. <laughs> right. Uh. <laughs>
0: Well, I mentioned in the intro, it's funny, I mentioned to the intro to tell everyone, hey, please, please take notes. And I've only done that on, on, honestly, only a handful of episodes because, and I knew it because every word that you've said here is such valuable info um, that uh, I'm lucky enough to have read the book and I have uh, essentially so much of it is highlighted. But um, I really hope people are are listening to this while reading your book, but also taking notes because uh, so much valuable info that you're sharing with us today.
1: Wow, you are too kind. (laughs)
0: Um, you know one last thing i'd like to finish off with this just because we have my my audience is two sets of people one set is people who have just got a new uh, management role or have to lead a team and the other side is people who are aspiring to be a leader and they're employee right now and they're ambitious to become a leader if you had to sum it up into being a leader in 2021 and beyond do you have any advice for those people
1: Yeah, well, ironically, it's the same as in 2020 and 2019, right? The the number one job of a leader of a team is to figure out what's keeping your people from doing their best work and eliminate it. And if that means you have the power to change something in your organization, great. If that means that you just have to act as a human shield and block all of the sort of inertia and stuff of the organization from your people, great. Uh, But figure out what your people need to do their best work and eliminate it. And the good news of that, by the way, is that you don't actually have to be a leader to do that. You have to be a good teammate, but you can, whether you have an authoritative title or not, you can look at your team, try and figure out what's blocking your coworkers from doing their best work and provide as much help uh, as you can. You know, The irony is that'll also make it more likely that you get promoted into that. Uh, but at that point, what they're really doing is giving you a title for something you were doing anyway, which is leading, which is helping people figure out how to get where they want to go and get it, and accomplish what they want to Accomplish, figure out what's blocking your people from doing their best work and then remove it.
0: I love that. That's beautiful. And uh, if people want to get in touch with you, they want to buy not only this book, but see your other work as well. How can they do that?
1: So, I mean, the show notes for this episode are a great place, right? <laughs> yes. um, but, but also, if you're like, oh, I can't double tap the cover art for some reason because I'm driving mm. or whatever, just type in com. Uh, even if you spell the name wrong, Google will auto correct you at this point. Uh, you'll either get me or you'll get the interior designer, Nate Burkus, who's pretty good. So, you know, <laughs> it's a win, it's actually a win win either way. Uh, but DavidBurkis.com is the best place to find out uh, about all the books, everything else that we're doing on. We also put out a lot, a lot of content now. Uh, and the best place to get all of it is right there. Uh,
0: and David, you're amazing. You're also very humble. I want to let everyone know also David has amazing TED Talks as well. Please check those out. And uh, hey, David, thanks again. Uh, this has been amazing. And I'm going to be following your journey. Uh, and I'm hey, I'm waiting for the next book as well. I really love the Leading from Anywhere. And I know there's going to be more challenges uh, to leadership as the time goes on. So I'll be looking forward to anything you come up with uh, in the years ahead.
1: No, no, thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for your support.
0: All right. Take care. I hope you enjoyed that episode and I really, really appreciate your support. If you want to learn more, please visit leadershipev.com. If you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at rdg at leadershipev.com. That's A-R-D-I-G at leadershipev.com. Thank you and see you soon.
1: And just ran a long distance My girlfriend told me all I needed was persistence Opportunity come one time So don't